Welcome to State of the State, the monthly roundup of policy and research for the state of Michigan, brought to you by the Institute for Public Policy and Social Research at Michigan State University and our friends here at Michigan State University Audio Studios. I'm Arnold Weinfeld, Associate Director for the Institute. Joining me, as always, are our co-hosts, Institute Director Dr. Matt Grossman and economist Dr. Charlie Ballard. Well, Matt and uh, Charlie, uh, I think today we get to talk a bit about the juxtaposition between what's going on in the federal government and what's going on in the state government. Governor Whitmer gave her state-of-the-state speech uh, this week, and the legislature is uh, yesterday threw money around like it's uh, coming out of trees. So uh, let's let's start with uh, the uh, congressional political circus, um, which, of course, started with uh, the uh, anointment of uh, a new speaker after 14, 15 votes. Do we not? Do we remember how many that was? And uh, now that he's in position, uh, the first thing that uh, has come up is uh, the debt ceiling. Right. Uh, and uh, Treasury already taking some steps to make sure that we can pay our bills, at least for a few months. Charlie, you want to take a moment to explain to our audience about the debt ceiling and its importance at the federal level? Right. Um, the U.S. is actually the only country that has a statutory limit on how much debt we can run. Other countries, they just, okay, if we, if we incur debts, we pay them, and it's not an issue. We have this debt ceiling. Now, I will say, I think it's a very artificial distraction uh, because the 14th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution has a section that says the public debt of the United States, quote, shall not be questioned. And to me, shall not be questions means you, you, you can't hijack it. You can't hold it hostage. But we have repeatedly played this game, and no president so far has invoked the 14th Amendment. It looks like President Biden's team is not going to do that. So we will have some kind of showdown. Now, um, best case scenario, there's a lot of drama, a lot of headlines, and eventually we raise the debt ceiling. Uh, worst case scenario... Um, uh, we came close to this in 2011, um, the, uh, uh, when uh, we got kind of close to a default of, on, on the Treasury obligations. That would be catastrophic for the world financial situation if, uh, and for our, our economy because the U.S. Treasuries are the safest asset out there. Investors love having an asset that they believe is absolutely safe. If it becomes not safe, if we default on those obligations, boy, will that cause chaos in the financial markets. And um, it, it caused a fair amount of chaos in 2011 um, the, because it rattled investors. It, we didn't default, but there was a lot of uh, angst in the markets, and the Treasury had to end up paying tens of billions more in interest than they otherwise would have. So I just hope we can get past this thing without uh, going all the way down to the wire. We'll we'll see. Yeah, I mean, the fact of the matter is, is that, uh, like it or not, the world economy is very, very interconnected. Uh, I mean, we've we've learned that certainly through COVID and uh, every time these issues come, come up as well. Uh, now, the U.S. economy uh, right now is still seems to be chugging along forward. I read the other day that GDP was up and employment is down, um, per capita income is up, and yet there's still talk about fears of a recession. What's, uh, what, what's the mix there? So um, 
the, the debt issue and the inflation and recession are, are connected because during COVID, uh, Congress um, paid a, uh, put, put a lot of money out there. Uh, some of which I would say was not particularly well uh, vetted or uh, uh, controlled. And, and so that meant there's all this money, there's only mu- so much stuff, so prices rise. Then the Federal Reserve, uh, it falls to them to try to bring inflation under control. They've been raising interest rates. Um, so far, as you say, the economy is still growing. Um, I think that most analysts believe that in 2023, either we will have a soft landing, meaning very slow growth, but no actual recession, or a soft-ish landing, meaning a mild recession. Right now, nobody is predicting a deep recession, and I hope those predictions uh, come true. Um, We'll see. I I think uh, most analysts think that we will have a couple of uh, quarters of very, very slow growth, that employment growth will slow down. We'll find out next Friday uh, what the the latest jobs report is. But so far, the job market has continued to grow. Um, um, But likely, we'll have a kind of a sluggish year. I'm hoping that it won't be a deep recession, but it's not likely to be a a year of strong growth. Well, certainly, if you're in the tech sector, uh, job growth has has been a a little bit more than just sluggish. Uh, there have I, been I read 260,000 tech jobs uh, in, in the recent past. There have been some very highly publicized uh, layoffs, uh, big layoffs in, um, in the tech sector. Uh, on the other hand, uh, Taco Bell is looking to hire 25,000 workers. Chipotle is looking to hire 15,000. So, um, you know, it, it's, it's a mix. But I do think uh, the tech sector is a little unusual because they did so much hiring during the pandemic, um, a lot of which was, I think they they admitted at the time, was unsustainable. And so they're, they're retrenching somewhat now. Of course, uh, your mention of Taco Bell and Chipotle versus tech jobs brings to mind <laughs> those that were making, you know, near $100,000 uh, moving out of the economy. Or and, a quarter of a million. Yeah, or a quarter of a million. <clears throat> and those that are going to be making maybe $25,000 moving in. So. Uh, fair enough. And, of course, as we've discussed in this podcast many times, that's a very long-term trend uh, of uh, higher wage inequality. Uh, we've seen that really for the last 40-plus uh, years, and there's no indication that that's going to turn around anytime soon. Uh, what the discussion about uh, the debt limit, uh, even if they come to some agreement uh, in in the near future, what impact might that have on the economy moving forward? Is that going to even the even the notion of uh, of the United States defaulting on its debt limit or the issues of cutting Social Security, which it seems like Kevin McCarthy had a bargain with uh, his conservative caucus, uh, conservative wing on. Um, what what might that do to investors? The closer that we get to an actual default, the more likely it will rattle financial markets, and that will have ripple effects throughout the economy, all of which are bad, or almost all of which are bad. Um, the, the, the cadre of the, the most... Uh, um, strident Republicans in Congress, they don't have the votes to rip the guts out of Social Security. They don't have the votes to rip the guts out of Medicare. Uh, in fact, in, in a typical recent year, 
Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, interest on the national debt, veterans programs, and defense are about five out of every six dollars that the federal government spends. So and the interest on the national debt might not be popular, but you got to pay it. The others, Social Security, is it popular? Tell me. It is wildly popular. Any, any uh, member of Congress who votes to um, rip up Social Security, they, they should be getting ready to sell their house in January of 2025. Uh, so, um, you know, I, I think that we're, we're probably going to have a lot of drama. I think we're less likely to have a whole lot of substantive change. I will say, however, that, you know, Although I say that the debt ceiling is unnecessary drama, it is still true that we got to get our deficit and our debts under control. We, we can't continue to run multi-trillion dollar deficits indefinitely. Sooner or later, we will have a currency crisis if we do that. So we have to do it. But I think we need to do it instead of with one group in, hot, in Congress holding the rest of them hostage. Do it the old-fashioned hard way, which is people meet in a room. It's messy. It it takes courage and compromise. But we did it from 97 to 2000. We balanced our budget four years in a row. It can be done. I don't say it's easy, but it needs to be done. And we, the people, uh, deserve no less than our elected leaders to just roll up their sleeves and do the tough work. Matt, you've often talked about... Um as Charlie was mentioning, you know, programs uh, that make up the social safety net and how even though uh, one party or the other may seek to change those, uh, the public gets used to them and uh, they become really uh, a part of our part of our economic fabric. I mean, would you agree with Charlie that at the end of the day, programs like Social Security, Medicare, veterans programs, so on and so forth, even though you have a, a, a group of lawmakers in Washington that would like to see major changes to those programs, will they stay pretty much the same? Well, certainly we uh, tend not to see repeals of major uh, popular uh, programs. Uh, and when we see any changes, they tend to be paired with expansions in other areas. Uh, so the Obamacare reforms did uh, make reforms to Medicare, cuts to Medicare, uh, but they were paired with expansion in, in other areas. So that, that kind of thing is possible, but it tends uh, not uh, to jeopardize those major uh, programs. Um, but I don't think uh, we can expect the low drama uh, solution to material realize uh, this time. It's not just a, a small group uh, within the Republican Party. It's the entire Republican caucus that wants to use the debt ceiling as leverage uh, to uh, reduce uh, uh, spending commitments. It's Joe Manchin uh, and uh, some others in the Democratic policy wonk uh, world as well. Uh, and uh, the Republicans won in 2011 using the debt ceiling as leverage. They got a major uh, sequestration of uh, future uh, funding in exchange for supporting the debt limit. Uh, they lost in 2013. Uh, remember, Ted Cruz uh, tried to defund uh, Obamacare, uh, but they had a government shutdown a couple weeks before the debt ceiling, uh, so that uh, helped uh, kind of allow them to, to go forward with it, uh, but then relent uh, when it wasn't working before the debt ceiling. But the parties have learned alternate lessons 
from those two episodes. The Democrats have learned never to let uh, 2011 happen again, and the Republicans have learned never to let 2013 happen again. And that is not a recipe uh, for an easy solution. Um, if I had to guess, I would say there will be uh, cuts to domestic discretionary spending, or at least some uh, commission that is supposed to propose them and get them on a fast track, uh, because that is sort of the only uh, the only kind of odd man out uh, from that 70% of the budget uh, that uh, the parties might uh, have some agreement uh, to, to rein in. Is it possible that we might see more of a uh, block grant system to the states reemerge and that um, each state gets a chunk of money uh, for those kinds of programs and then decides how to spend it? Might that be a way uh, out of this? Well, frankly, the states do not need money. Uh, the uh, one of the the things that the the large <clears throat> pandemic spending did was to send a lot of federal money to uh, the states, and they are all uh, still dealing with uh, having all of that uh, additional money to to allocate uh, today. Um, one of the Republican solutions proposed is to actually pare back some of the unspent pandemic relief funding. So that's another potential way out where the parties could say we are making an agreement not to spend the things that haven't been spent yet from a year ago. Um, but I don't know that you're going to see, you know, any major reforms to these programs. Certainly, you know, no big block granting of Medicare, Social Security, these big components of the, the budget. Well, let's talk about the states for a second. Um, here in Michigan, the governor just gave her uh, State of the State speech. Uh, you were talking about states having money. Uh, we did a forum uh, last week at Ipser where uh, Rob Schneider of the Citizens Research Council noted that overall Michigan has a $9 billion surplus. $6 billion of it is ARPA funds, as you noted, uh, that might get clawed back. But $3 billion of it alone is general fund surplus that – you know, we thought at the beginning of the pandemic things were just going to, you know, crash and uh, we'd have no money. And as we come out of the pandemic, we've got a $3 billion surplus. Let's talk about the state of the state speech first. Um, anything new that uh, that Governor Whitmer proposed uh, in her state of the state speech? And how does that match up with what you're seeing in other states? Well, you can definitely tell that the state has uh, a lot of money, and obviously the Republicans did not expect uh, to lose control of the legislature because they left $9 billion for the Democrats to allocate. Uh, and the uh, speech showed that that means you can promise everything to everyone at this point. You can have tax cuts. You can have spending increases. Uh, and I've never seen accountants uh, act like uh, they are now, which is to say, sure, you can do that. Sure, you can do that. And you can do that, too. Overall income tax cut, sure. Pension tax cut, sure. Yeah. Uh, earned income tax credit expansion, sure. Spending increases in child care, sure. Uh, Eventually, we will run out of money, but there's such a, a large amount now uh, that there is, you know, appetite uh, to to increase, um, you know, our allocations and to, to allocate them to, to tax cuts. Uh, th there were some uh, proposals for um, uh, universal pre-K, uh, which need a lot of details uh, to, to come. Um, there were some social issue proposals, uh, but m a lot of it was the same things that were proposed in the campaign and last year. It's just now everyone who s hears them says, well, that actually has a chance to be enacted because 
there's a Democratic legislature for the first time in, in 40 years. Um, so similar proposals, uh, but uh, with more of a chance uh, to move forward because you got unified government and a lot of money. Uh, yeah, let's talk about a lot of money. Uh, just last night, uh, the legislature approved a $1.1 billion supplemental uh, that's going to uh, go largely for uh, economic development to the MEDC and for specific projects at the uh, at the same time, you noted, they approved tax cuts. Uh, the, I guess what they're calling now the working families tax cut, which is an expansion of the earned income tax credit, which has been uh, argued for uh, for many years by many on both sides of, of the aisle. But they also finally uh, passed a repeal of the uh, retirement tax that uh, Democrats have, have been promised as well. So uh, what more do you think? And, and we've also got talk of an income tax uh, rollback because we've got too much money. Uh, and as you note, um, we're spending money on programs. We have economists saying that maybe these surpluses are going to last through 2026. Um, but uh, certainly, as you noted, it, it, it does beg the question of sustainability uh, moving forward if, if, if we put these uh, in, in together. What what more do you think we'll see out of this uh, Democratic uh, legislature? Well, first, these are uh, major changes um, and they're major reversals of policy that was enacted uh, just a, a decade ago uh, on both the pension tax and changing the earned income tax credit. Uh, so, and it is uh, kind of amusing that a new Democratic uh, legislature, uh, one of its uh, first big acts is actually likely to be uh, letting an across-the-board income tax uh, decline go through because there's an automatic trigger uh, built into prior agreements and Democrats don't want to be caught passing something to say, no, we don't want that tax cut to go uh, forward. Um, so that's that's quite a bit uh, on the table already. Um, there was a conspicuous lack of mention of right-to-work repeal in the state of the state. Uh, speech, which could either tell you that Democrats have, are being politically smart and putting those things on the table that they think uh, are un, are less controversial uh, to start before they get to the things that, that will cause um, a major conflict, or it could be a sign that maybe the votes aren't quite as lined up uh, as, as others uh, believe. Uh, we'll just have to wait and see. Gun safety was uh, something else that was mentioned uh I can't recall if the governor actually mentioned in the state of state, but certainly in a lot of documents, uh, we're talking gun safety, uh, universal background checks, uh, so-called uh, red flag laws, although I think uh, the governor has labeled them as people protection uh, laws as well as uh, safe storage. Well, and as she mentioned, um, she said, I think even Florida and Ohio uh, ha have passed uh, similar provisions. These are nationwide trends to some extent uh, that we have. Uh, uh, these kinds of lighter gun regulations and gun regulations focused on the people who have access to guns rather than the types of guns uh, that everyone has access to um, that are that are becoming more palatable nationwide. And the pre-K is also a nationwide trend. We're actually behind uh, in increased allocations to pre-K that are occurring across the states. So yes, a lot of what she mentioned is you know these nationwide trends. And obviously we had our own uh, mass shooting in uh, Michigan, uh, and it's still uh, provoking interest in the legislature in doing something uh, that seems to be responsive. 
Charlie, speaking of tax cuts, let's get uh, to one of your favorite topics, <laughs> uh, which is uh, the pension tax repeal. Yes. Well, I've said it before, and I'll say it again, but I'm, I, I, I recognize fully that I'm a lonely voice in the wilderness and that uh, I, I don't have much influence over public policy. But the um, back before 2011, uh, 95% of Michigan seniors paid no income tax. And on net, when you include various credits, they paid less than nothing in income tax. Then we went from extraordinarily generous to only very generous uh, tax treatment of, of seniors. And now we're going to go back to extraordinarily generous. And I, I've always spoken against that. I think uh, I'm, I'm even more, uh, my, my complaint is even more valid now that I am actually retired and that I am receiving retirement income, which would be taxed under the old uh, system and, and won't be taxed, or at least not much, under the new system. Um, I don't think that citizenship ends when you retire, but uh, as, as I say, that's a that's a very lonely voice, and the um, the 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 AARP and other groups uh, have have uh, have been very vocal in in pushing for this. I guess my point is, an affluent retiree shouldn't pay less tax than the nurse's aide, who's who's struggling to to make rent. Um, so it's a it's a very uh, I think it's a, a very inequitable um, thing, but it, it just has huge momentum, and uh, I don't think I can stop it. The earned income tax credit, on the other hand, I, I'm very much in favor of that because it does go to low- and middle-income uh, working families with children. That's where almost all the dollars go. And so uh, those, are the, those are the folks for whom I have a whole lot more sympathy than I have for myself because I won't tell you how much money I have, but we're, we're pretty well off. And that was the, the one uh, uh, moment in the speech where the Republicans stood up to clap just as loudly as uh, the Democrats. And we got uh, a Republican support uh, for uh, that uh, earned income tax credit expansion uh, in both chambers. Uh, but that might be a kind of a lonely uh, piece where you really see uh, Democratic and Republican agreement. Yeah, the Republicans were not cheering when there was mention of uh, reproductive rights, LGBTQ rights, and, and, and a variety of other things. Uh, let's stay on uh, the spending of money and, and tax giveaways and tax breaks. One of the things that was in this supplemental was uh, more tax breaks, again, for economic development projects, whether they're singular projects like a paper mill in Escanaba uh, or um, uh, there was another one uh, for an economic development project uh, elsewhere and $150 million into the so-called SOAR fund. You know, and we've talked about this over over the course of time about uh, the use of uh, taxpayer dollars as incentives for economic development projects. Um, Very little in the way of research that they actually help to draw in projects. But yet, if we were to end it, uh, it's kind of like mutual assured destruction. Uh, Matt, any any thoughts? I mean, you've dove into this topic uh, quite a bit yourself. This is a case where the research is uh, relatively uh, consistent, uh, finding that these uh, business tax incentives uh, do not result 
uh, in uh, major increases in business income, any other outcome that states might be looking for, even accounting for the fact that other states would do it, uh, much less if we could agree to some kind of ceasefire <laughs> across the states uh, to, uh, to reduce these uh, tax incentives. And certainly not if you compare it to other uses of the same uh, funds, like general funding for infrastructure or education. So uh, these, or tax cuts. So uh, this is a case where the experts are in agreement and the politicians said, uh, no thanks, we'll go along uh, with our uh, traditional approach. Uh, because they like to be there uh, at the, the ribbon cutting uh, and like to be able to take credit for these projects. It's always amused at me, me that this occurs often just a couple weeks later. You know, we pass a major uh, uh, set of tax incentives for GM. GM announces a factory, you know, the week later, and people say, oh, look at our immediate progress from passing that uh, policy. And it's like, do you think a major company like what was, you know, was ready to announce this, but would have pulled back from it uh, absent this this amount of, of tax credit? It had never crossed their mind until the tax credit yeah. came along. <laughs> um, so very heady times right now here in Michigan, it seems. Uh, lots of money to be spent on, on programs, on projects. Um any thoughts about the next six months to a year? I mean, is this uh, is this Democratic administration, this Democratic legislature uh, going to continue to benefit uh, from the state being awash in money as compared to some of the other tougher subjects that you mentioned, Matt, such as right to work or, or gun safety? Uh, what do we think? What road do we think they're going to take? Well, they, uh, you know, they, it was a, a fairly set, partisan set of uh, proposals that were put forward. Uh, there was only a few things that, that were uh, offered uh, that, that are likely to generate Republican support. But historically, most laws still pass with bipartisan support. Um, most policies uh, tend to eventually be negotiated to have uh, some support from both parties. So there probably will be things under the radar, especially as we get later uh, in the term that do pass uh, with uh, more bipartisan support and probably still some budget negotiations that end up uh, with some uh, Republican uh, input. Um, but definitely it's partly just about economic times. So, you know, the research on State of the State addresses shows that governors almost always propose spending increases, Republican or Democrat. They get about 80% of uh, what they ask for in those State of the State uh, addresses. Uh, and it's just much more dependent on the state of the economy and the state budget uh, than it is on state partisanship. Uh, so right after she got the, the momentary applause from Republicans on the earned income tax credit, uh, she then uh, stepped on it by saying a decade ago we, she was righting a wrong from a decade ago when they had to raise the, these, these taxes. Uh, but you know, that was a different economic time. Uh, it, it isn't the case that previous governors wanted to raise taxes and, and decrease spending. Uh, that's uh, what was made available to them uh, by the state of state revenue. And Charlie, certainly Michigan's economy is, is, as we know, not immune to outside forces and outside pressures. Um, not at all. You know, we still have a war going on in Ukraine that uh, the United States and its allies seem to be uh, digging in deeper to. Um, there's conflicts uh, in almost every, every corner of the world. Um, supply chains are still uh, not where they were 
uh, before before COVID. Um, how do you see the the future? Uh, you know, if you look into your crystal ball six months from now, where are we going to be? Well, I think six months from now, um, we're likely to be kind of close to where we are now. As I say, I think nationally, it's likely that we'll either have a very mild recession or not quite a recession. In other words, slow growth. Uh, Because Michigan, even after all the shrinkage of the uh, automobile sector, even after all that shrinkage, we still are more heavily dependent upon durable goods manufacturing than the average state. And durable goods mean bigger ups and downs of the economy because you you can put off pay, buying a car, you can't put off buying groceries. So um, it's likely to be, um, you know, not a great time, not a horrible time. I, I keep, instead of looking at the next six months, just looking at the the, the really big picture, for better or worse, Michigan prospered in the middle of the 20th century phenomenally with the manufacturing-based economy. That has shrunk, and we haven't done as much as some other places to replace it with high-tech, high-skill stuff. And so um, in 2021, which is the last year for which we have the data, we slipped a couple of notches to 34th among the 50 states in per capita personal income. And we've been in the 30s for the last uh, more than decade. And um, if, I, I would love to see us uh, skyrocket in the rankings, but that's unlikely as long as we're notably below the national average in terms of the educational attainment of our of our working population. So I think we're, you know, muddling along, doing doing okay. Um, but uh, gangbusters growth is not something that I am uh, anticipating. I wish I were, but I don't think so. And we're moving in the wrong direction on that education front. Uh, new data showed that uh, during the pandemic, there was about a 10 to 15 percent decline in uh, Michigan high school graduates going on to colleges, primarily in community colleges, and we haven't recovered. Right. Uh, so we're still having fewer people go to college. Lots of other states have that have that problem, but that's that's scant comfort to me. Yeah. Yeah. Well, certainly, uh, despite the heady times on the uh, dollar side, there are certainly some issues to work on to ensure uh, economic growth uh, into the future, as well as hopefully population growth. Any other thoughts as we close the show? Always a pleasure to have this discussion. Well, uh, since we're entering Valentine's season, I'll end on a stat I saw this morning in the Washington Post, which is that uh, people who were born in Michigan were more are more likely to marry other people born in Michigan than that same pairing for any other state. Is that right? Uh, and yeah. one of the reasons is the the bad news that we know, which is that there aren't a lot of people coming into Michigan from other states. But I think one of the other reasons is the good news that we don't tout as much, which is actually that our young people tend to stay in the state uh, rather uh, than uh, leave uh, for uh, elsewhere. So I think all of us were born outside of Michigan. So we're the exceptions here. Uh, but Michigan has a lot of people uh, who are, are born and, and stay and, and love here. Well, it's great to know that Michigan is the nation center for romance, and, and uh, that's, uh, that, that's, uh, that'll make me feel good as we move into the Valentine season. And I think that's a, uh, a good way to close, to close this month's show. Again, my thanks to Russ White and the staff here at MSU Audio Studios for their support of this program. Charlie and Matt, always a pleasure. 
And to our audience, join us again next month on State of the State.